Hey folks, and warmest welcomes to another episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. To date, the premier North Wales spare room-based one-man true crime podcast that covers the often forgotten, the often obscure and unfamiliar cases that the UK and Ireland has in its dark history. I'm the producer and host of the show, Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, where it's wonderful as ever to have you guys joining me. I thank you very much for doing so, and I hope that you're all well, having good times whenever you are or whatever you're doing. Enjoying the sun that we've got, hopefully. It's like the start of the Simpsons outside all day. It's wonderful. Now, I usually begin the episodes by saying thanks very much to the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. And I'll do that here, of course, but because I've had some episodes pre-recorded before the fourth series began, I've been playing proper catch-up as I go along with this, and I'm just getting around now to thanking and welcoming supporters, and some of them it's quite a few weeks late. So I do apologise for this, I never want to come across like it's not important to me to say thanks personally to supporters of the show, because it is. As I've said before, the show doesn't exist without you guys, and your support means the absolute world. So big thanks to returning and new show supporters Verena Clark, Sharon, Angela Montgomery, Adele Moll, Rachel Horwitz, Netta, Amanda Cross, Nina Miller, Omadorn Van Halen, fantastic name or what that, eh? Joanne Davis, Mandy Dorber, Christine Phillips, Nicola Alberston, Glenda Seeger, Anuka Ladenpira, Angela Sanchez, Stacey Menard, Amanda Lincourt and Lauren S. Now apologies if I've pronounced anybody's name there incorrectly, but it's absolutely ace of you guys that thank you so much. Bonus episode number 19 is coming for you all shortly as well. It's finally chosen and now I've just got the small matter of writing and recording the bloody thing. So niff naff and triv that is and it will be out shortly as I say. So a very unfamiliar case is featured on the show this week, one that I had a vague memory of that was featured on Crime Watch many years ago back in the mid-1980s, and one that I came across again when the edition it was featured on was uploaded onto YouTube just a few months ago. I also found it again further in a random true crime book that I'd bought online not long after this when I couldn't sleep one night. It's something I do far too often when I can't sleep, that is, hence the massive library. By all accounts, and there is very little to research concerning the case covered in this week's episode, it's a bit of a controversial one, and it's certainly a sad one, I thought. The episode this week contains descriptions of a crime involving a sexual nature and also involving a vulnerable adult that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised as always whilst listening, guys. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for a case I've entitled Suzanne's Story. The southeast Wales city of Newport, on the banks of the River Usk and just a short 12 miles or so from the capital city of Wales, Cardiff, is one of Wales' largest cities with a population of about 145,000 people. Now, Having a port as a suffix would suggest it is on the water. It's not somewhere that I've ever been to, I must admit, and in keeping with the normal stats that I always give about wherever we're on about here on the show, I found some proper gems about Newport. It was the place where Harry Houdini kicked off his first ever international tour way back in 1905. Parts of Captain America, the first Avenger, were filmed in a village nearby to Newport, the battle scenes from the Second World War. In 2010, Newport was the site of Europe's highest ever wire walk, 
when French circus star Olivier Roulin walked across a 90-metre stretch of cable across the masts of Newport's river footbridge, at the highest point being almost 80 metres above the river Rusk. Uh, not something I'd fancy doing myself personally, but there you go, takes all sorts. And a legendary but now defunct music venue in Newport, TJ's, is allegedly the venue where Kurt Cobain proposed to Courtney Love many years ago. Bit random, but how cool is that? But my favourite stat that I found concerning Newport is that one of the famous people to call Newport home, at least for a time anyway, is Victor Willis. Yeah, now Victor Willis is not a name that's at the forefront of your mind, is it really? It wasn't mine as well, I must admit. But Victor Willis was only the guy from the village people who dressed like the traffic cop. Yeah, are you having that or what, eh? Apparently, his wife hails from the Newport area, and they came over to Newport to live following of his release from drug charges in the United States. Now, I'm assuming they have a house and they don't just doss down in the YMCA, even if you can get yourself clean or have a good meal there. So Newport, of course, is the setting for the tale in this week's episode. Back in 1988, Newport was still a town. It was only granted city status in 2002, but it was an industrious town, having a thriving steel and iron industry, and was just also beginning to develop as a centre for high-tech manufacturing. It had also been the home since birth of 23-year-old commercial vehicle mechanic Tony Wesson, who worked in a garage in the town and who lived at home with his mother and father. On the warm day of Friday the 1st of July 1988, Tony cheerfully waved goodbye to his mother as he left their house to drive the short distance to an upstairs flat at nearby Tewkesbury Walk, part of a housing complex near to Newport Shaftesbury Park, where Tony's fiancée, 20-year-old Suzanne Greenhill lived. 20-year-old Suzanne had been born deaf in 1968 and her parents had separated when Suzanne was just six weeks old. Her mother Wendy had remarried in 1971 and from 1972 onwards, at age four, Suzanne had attended a series of special schools in the Gwent and South Glamorgan areas the last being the residential Ashgrove Special School for Deaf Children in the nearby town of Penarth. Suzanne had stayed at the school until she was 17 years old, but had barely been able to form words and was to leave here with no academic qualifications, although she could communicate using British Sign Language. Returning home to live with her mother and stepfather following leaving school, Suzanne struggled to adapt to a life with, as she felt, restrictions being placed upon her. School residency had made her a headstrong, fiercely independent girl and rebelling against the family unit that she wasn't used to anymore. When she turned 18, Suzanne left home and went to live in a hostel for single homeless women in Newport. Suzanne thrived on her renewed independence following this move and by living away from home, this also caused the relationships with her mother and stepfather to improve greatly and they began developing a good mutual relationship once again. Although she was unemployed, Suzanne tended to do a lot with her time, and was forever out shopping with her family and friends, or catching up with them for cups of tea, that kind of thing. She was an avid follower of the latest fashions of the time, which when you look back at now, you either loved or loathed the 80s fashions personally. You either love it or you hate it, it's like Marmite and she made lots of her own outfits, harbouring a desire to train and work professionally as a seamstress. 
Suzanne had a caseworker who helped her out with everyday things such as form filling and anything official to do with the benefits, that kind of thing. And she was also an active member of the local Lady Hill Deaf Club, which met weekly at a social club in the Newport area and where the attractive blonde had made many friends, including meeting several who became boyfriends rather than acquaintances. As Tony Wesson had also been deaf since birth, and as like Suzanne, he was also an active member of Newport's deaf community, they'd met about two years previously at one of the many functions that were held at the Lady Hill Club. They'd got on well, and from here they began spending time together as friends, indulging in their shared passions of swimming and keeping fit together, and this friendship soon developed into something further, and they became a couple. After she met and began a relationship with Tony Wesson, to whom she soon became engaged to, Suzanne moved out of the hostel and into the first floor flat, number 9, of the Tewkesbury Walk complex in Newport, which she absolutely loved. For someone who had, for differing periods throughout her life, felt isolated because of her condition, here at the Tewkesbury Walk complex there were several other residents who were either deaf also, or had other physical or learning impairments, including Tony's partially deaf sister Amanda. And for the first time in years, Suzanne felt she could enjoy her independence, but yet also feel part of a community where she felt more comfortable and accepted than ever before whilst doing so. Tony had helped her move into the flat, which she loved immensely as we've said, and kept incredibly tidy due to her house-proud nature. He'd helped her pick out some styles and colour schemes, and they decorated it together. He had his own set of keys to the property, having a set of his own cut when the spare set had gone missing not long after Suzanne moved in, and aside from seeing each other a few times throughout the week, Tony would often stay over there at weekends when he was not working. So parking his car shortly before 6pm that July Friday evening in the allocated spaces for occupants of the flat complex and their visitors, Tony noticed when he parked up that the curtains and blinds to Suzanne's first floor flat were drawn, which was unusual for that time of day. Using his own set of keys, he unlocked the ground floor communal main entrance door to the complex and made his way up the stairs to flat number 9, using his keys to open that also. Less than a minute later, a shaken and highly distressed Tony Wesson was rushing back down the stairs where he frantically pounded on the door of Suzanne's neighbours on the ground floor, Hazel King and Ernest Morgan, and eventually managed to explain to them the reason for his distress through his anguish and fright. A short time later, a telephone call from them was logged at 6.02pm at Newport Central Police Station, and shortly after this, police officers and paramedics arrived at the scene. When he'd entered Suzanne's flat just minutes before, Tony had been concerned to find his fiancée's normally spick-and-span home in some state of disarray. There were lots of things out of place and on the floor, a picture hung awkwardly on the wall in the front room, and even though the patio door to the flat was partially open, there was a certain unpleasant smell about the place that Tony at first couldn't work out what it was. Suzanne's gym bag, next to a set of keys that he recognised as being hers, lay on the kitchen worktop, but of Suzanne, there was no sign. Going into the main bedroom of the flat, though, Tony realised what the smell was, and found the disturbing sight that was only to seconds later have him rushing downstairs for help. 
Lying on the bedroom floor on her right side between the bed and the cupboard, he found his fiancée's semi-naked body lying in a congealed pool of blood, cold to the touch. A strip of 5cm fast-aid oxide zinc sticking plaster had been placed across Suzanne's eyes to act as a blindfold, while Suzanne's own underwear had been stuffed into her mouth to act as a gag. She'd been raped, and she'd been stabbed multiple times in the throat and back, killing her. As the scene was sealed off and a murder investigation began, a police surgeon was called to the Tewkesbury Walk complex to certify Suzanne as being deceased. When the attending surgeon, Dr Clayson Thomas, had done this, the body was photographed in situ and tapings were taken from it before it was then removed to the Newport morgue to await the results of a home office post-mortem. As this was being done, a forensic team then moved into the flat to begin detailed examination of the scene. Although there was some evidence of disarray, a few things lying on about the floor and the patio door to the flat was partially open as we've said, there was no sign of any forced entry to either door. Nothing appeared to have been stolen either, however, and nor were there any real signs of ransacking to the property. The concentration of bloodstaining in the bedroom, from what must have been an absolutely frenzied attack, seemed to suggest that Suzanne had been killed exactly where she was found in a sexually motivated attack, but traces of blood were also found at various locations around the flat. Particularly of interest to the forensic team was a size 4.5 or size 5 bloody footprint, it couldn't be determined further than this, that was found on the bathroom floor. It was not a shoe print however, it was a stockinged footmark, which was photographed and a copy made. What killer takes off his shoes to commit murder? The post-mortem, conducted by Home Office pathologist Dr Paul Kellett, revealed the cause of Suzanne's death to be due to the repeated stab wounds to the neck and back, seven in total, which had caused shock and massive blood loss, rapidly leading to her death. The level of decomposition that had set into her body revealed that Suzanne had been dead for at least 36 hours before Tony had found her, and the examination had also found the presence of human semen during a vaginal swab. Taking this into account with slight chafing to the vagina, suggested that Suzanne had been stabbed by a killer and then raped. Although DNA profiling was unable to be carried out at the time due to the low sperm count in the semen sample, a test for the blood grouping of the killer was successful from it, and it revealed that the semen originated from a male who was an O-type secretor. As Suzanne's fiancé and the finder of her body, Tony Wesson was automatically the prime suspect in a murder, and was arrested and taken to Newport Central Police Headquarters for questioning, but his initial questioning alerted police to the potential of what was indeed to become a problem for the investigation, because as we've said, Tony was deaf, and Susanna herself had been deaf without speech since birth. As it was established that the couple were very active within the local deaf community, and thus had a large number of friends from that community, and who would need to be spoken to of course, this had to be factored into the investigation, and sign language interpreters had to be brought in, because at the time, Gwent police had no officers who were trained in British Sign Language. Tony revealed that he'd last seen his fiancée three days before, on the Tuesday of that week, the 28th of June, 
when he'd collected her from her flat that afternoon after he'd finished work and taken her for tea at his home. After their meal, they'd walked to the home of some mutual friends of theirs, Anthony Roberts and Bernadette Miller, visiting only for a few minutes before going on to Newport Leisure Centre to do some weightlifting in the fitness room. Here they met a cousin of Suzanne's, Sean Lewis, who was surprised to see her there as he was a regular to the gym and he'd not seen her there before, and they chatted some before working out, with Tony helping Suzanne to do so because it was something that she had just started doing with him. The couple finished working out and left the leisure centre at about 9.30pm before calling at the home of another mutual friend, John Wilkinson, to return a catalogue that Tony had borrowed from him. The pair had stayed a few minutes here talking, where they said goodnight outside, and Suzanne then left to walk the three quarters of a mile journey home alone on foot. This was the last time Tony had seen his fiancée alive. He could be solidly alibied from that point onwards, and he was ruled out of the investigation completely as a suspect, as it was believed that Suzanne had met her death sometime on the Wednesday or the early hours of Thursday. Suzanne's movements from the point where she left Tony until her body was discovered nearly three days later were not known, and it became imperative for police to fill this gap. A task force of 40 police officers, led by Detective Chief Superintendent Mark Waters, was set up to deal with the murder inquiry, and for second-in-command Detective Chief Inspector William Glynn, the case had a slightly personal angle, because he knew the Greenhill family quite well. He lived just 10 doors away from them in Newport and whilst he didn't know Suzanne too well he knew her mother, her stepfather and her younger brother much better. The task force faced a number of difficulties from the off in the investigation here though. No one had witnessed any suspicious activity around Suzanne's flat and there was no sign of any forced entry to the flat. It indicated a killer who was known to the victim and as Suzanne didn't have a job and tended to mix exclusively with other members of Newport's deaf community, it was one who was likely to be another member of this community. Had Suzanne invited her killer into the flat for some reason, and had then been raped and murdered, with the killer then leaving through the patio door to avoid being spotted leaving the scene? Other difficulties concerned establishing the exact day and time of Suzanne's murder, and the necessity to ascertain the precise whereabouts of Suzanne following Tony kissing her goodbye and watching her walk home at about 9.40pm on the Tuesday evening. Crucially, looking at the rest of the Tuesday and the day and night of Wednesday the 29th of June. The post-mortem had suggested that Suzanne was already dead by early that Thursday morning, but again there were difficulties in this area, immense ones. Newspaper appeals by police and the immediate initial inquiries they'd performed had led to a number of reports from normally reliable people detailing alleged sightings of Suzanne on both the Wednesday and the Thursday before she was discovered. These included other members of the deaf community who knew her, neighbours of Suzanne's and post office staff at the local office where Suzanne usually cashed her weekly unemployment gyro check. There were so many sightings of her that these conflicted with the length of time that she was estimated to have been dead at the initial post-mortem, and so a second post-mortem was requested and performed on behalf of the Gwent coroner. The second post-mortem now produced a statement that read, 
Having regard to all aspects, it is not inconsistent that death could have occurred up to three days prior to the body being found. So this didn't help with the sightings, it just added more confusion, as this now meant that the killing could have happened in theory as far back as late on the Tuesday evening, when Suzanne had returned home after she and Tony had been to the gym. And evidence from the crime scene tended to support this theory that the murder had happened at that time, not the Wednesday or even early Thursday, despite the alleged sightings of Suzanne on those days that police had received. Most importantly, she was found still wearing half of the same outfit that she was known to have worn on that Tuesday, although the clothing was disarranged and the rest was nearby on the bedroom floor torn off. They matched the description of the clothes Suzanne was confirmed to have been wearing by the loved ones and friends who were known to have seen and spoken to her that night. Tony, Anthony Roberts, Bernadette Miller, Sean Lewis and John Wilkinson. In addition, Suzanne's sports bag that she'd taken to the leisure centre that evening was still on the kitchen worktop in her flat next to a set of house keys. The bag still included a soiled sports gear from a Tuesday gym session and the wet towel that she'd used to shower after her workout, items which would unlikely have been left in the bag to stink, but would rather have been taken out and washed at the earliest opportunity. Police were therefore looking at the probable scenario that Suzanne had parted from Tony and walked home from John Wilkinson's house, had entered her flat and had gone straight into the kitchen and deposited his sports bag and keys on the kitchen worktop, before being surprised by an intruder who was already on the premises, perhaps one who'd come in through the patio door, which may have been left unlocked. Alternatively, if it was somebody that she knew, it was possible that she'd met a killer on the way home and unwittingly let him in, and he'd subsequently left through the patio door following the murder to avoid being seen. So pursuing this viewpoint, and this is sound reasoning it would seem, it meant that the police task force had to regard all of the sightings that they'd received of Suzanne on the Wednesday or the Thursday as being a mix of mistaken identity or well-meaning witnesses genuinely being mistaken with dates and sightings of Suzanne that had actually occurred earlier. Adding to this confusion was that Suzanne's normally blonde hair had just that day, on the Tuesday, been dyed a shade of henna chestnut whereas all publicity photographs that were shown on television or circulated on the appeal posters distributed following the onset of the investigation, they all showed a smiling Suzanne pictured with her original blonde hair, and no one had commented on the different hair colour when they'd come forward with the alleged sightings. As the investigation got underway then, details of the life of Suzanne Greenhill began to emerge to police. The picture that emerged was of an attractive, fashion-conscious young woman who was well-liked, had many friends and was popular, having had a stream of boyfriends before becoming engaged to Tony. Yet, it became clear during the investigation that, despite Suzanne's engagement to Tony Wesson, she wasn't totally committed or faithful to him. It transpired early in the inquiry that Suzanne wasn't above dispensing the odd sexual favour to other men, including other members of the deaf community. One police officer described Suzanne, perhaps a bit unkindly I thought, as being oversexed, and Tony had even admitted during his questioning that although he had enjoyed a very healthy sex life with Suzanne, she had put ever-increasing demands upon him 
which he admitted that he was unable to meet, and a month before Suzanne was murdered, he'd purchased her a sex toy to assist with the demands that she was putting upon him. It was preferable to her seeking satisfaction in the arms of other men, which she had done on a number of occasions to his knowledge, and which was confirmed by other members of the deaf community when police spoke to them. So this gave police yet another possible motive for murder. Was it a jealous lover or a suitor? Tony had been satisfactorily ruled out of the inquiry as a suspect by this time, but this line of the investigation did throw up a number of other suspects, as police were by now convinced that Suzanne knew her killer. One obvious and strong suspect revealed almost immediately here was an ex-boyfriend of Suzanne's called Glenn Dempsey, who'd taken severe offence and had kicked off big time when she began a relationship with Tony Wesson. He'd waited for Tony outside the hostel where Suzanne had lived previously one evening and had waylaid him as he was leaving. Dempsey gave Tony a right hiding by all accounts, leaving him with a broken nose and a fractured cheekbone. Although Dempsey was arrested for this and ultimately convicted of assault, it had not won him Suzanne back. It had actually been the deciding factor in Suzanne moving from the hostel and into a flat of her own, number 9, Tewkesbury Walk. Dempsey was questioned over Suzanne's murder, but he was able to provide a solid alibi for his whereabouts at the suspected time of the murder, and also, he was not an O secretor, so Dempsey was ruled out of the inquiry. Very early in the inquiry, on the 2nd of July, actually, there was a flurry of excitement when police were called to a house in the nearby Kreuzerkeliog area of Cumbran, following reports that a man who was assisting police in the Suzanne Greenhill inquiry had taken an overdose, and although taken to hospital, had been pronounced dead on arrival. The man, 37-year-old Wynne Francon Davis, was a social worker with the former Gwent Social Services, who worked exclusively with the deaf community, and had actually been at Tewkesbury Walk less than 24 hours earlier assisting police in an interpretal role with members of the deaf community who lived there. He'd helped police interview Tony's sister Amanda the previous day, and as he was actually the support worker for both Amanda and Tony, Wynne of course knew Suzanne also. Now it happens often that a killer will take their own life following a murder that they commit because the enormity of what they've done suddenly just becomes too much for them to bear and police at first considered that this is what had happened. However, police later ruled out any link between Wynne's suicide and the murder of Suzanne Greenhill. It emerged later from friends of colleagues of the deceased that Wynne was suffering from pressures due to stress-related work problems and the time in an act of his death was just a tragic coincidence. In a statement to the media following reports of his death, Detective Chief Superintendent Mark Waters stated, Mr Davis's death does not form part of our inquiries. We were very happy with his assistance. He was a professional, dedicated and caring person and very concerned that something like this had happened within the deaf community. His death is very tragic but unconnected and we have every sympathy with his family and friends. In the same press conference, DCS Waters announced that police had discovered a blood-stained instrument which was thought to be the murder weapon, but refused to enlarge further on this. He didn't say what it exactly was or where it exactly had been discovered. He did, however, give confirmation for the first time publicly 
that Suzanne had been sexually assaulted during the murder and that she had died from multiple stab wounds. He appealed once again for members of the public to come forward with any information that may possibly help the inquiry and as a result information continued rolling in but there was no immediate definitive arrest and as the days rolled into weeks and these weeks then became months the Suzanne Greenhill murder inquiry became one of the longest murder hunts that had at the time been undertaken by Gwent police. By the time 1989 rolled around, more than 4,700 people had been interviewed in the Newport area and wider across the country, with more than 500 written statements being taken, and 2,700 separate lines of action followed up. It had become the first murder hunt to employ a total of 10 specialist sign language interpreters to assist in an investigation, helping police build up their knowledge of Suzanne's movements and who Suzanne was, and it had also even led to a first for Crime Watch UK, which of course isn't on anymore because the BBC are, well, you know by now what the BBC are. When a full reconstruction of what was known about the last few days of Suzanne's life was broadcast on the September 1988 edition of Crime Watch, which is available to see and which a link to will be found in this week's episode show notes, it was the first time that Crime Watch had featured a sign language interpreter on screen during an appeal and had been close captioned with teletext subtitles for deaf or hard of hearing people. A minicom line for deaf viewers was also installed for the programme and both that and the subtitling were to become permanent fixtures on each show broadcast going on from there. The reconstruction did mention to the wider public the fact that Suzanne had recently dyed her hair henna chestnut rather than blonde, and detailed a number of possible sightings of Suzanne on the last day that she was known to be alive. The reconstruction produced more than 200 responses from the public and the deaf community in particular, all of which had to be followed up by the murder squad. Now these included an anonymous caller who gave police the identity of someone he claimed was Suzanne's killer, although no further details of this were released. Following police chasing up the lines of inquiry that were generated by the information received, however, the inquiry ground to a standstill on the surface. It was five months later, in February 1989, the interest in the case was revived because it was then that a police spokesperson announced the arrest of a man on suspicion of the murder of Suzanne Greenhill. They refused to comment any further about this other than stating that this man was helping with their inquiries, but reporters at the press conference, because there was still much local interest in such a horrific, tragic murder, did notice that sign language interpreters were still milling around the police station where the suspect was being held and it doesn't take Colombo to jump to the conclusion that this man was a member of the deaf community. Newport magistrates were to twice grant permission to police for an extension to be able to question the man further than the allocated lawful period, and by the morning of Monday the 6th of February 1989, he appeared in Newport Magistrates Court, charged with the murder of Suzanne Greenhill, where he was remanded in custody. The episode will resume after a short word from this week's sponsor of the show, Away Travel. The episode this week is sponsored by Away Travel, creating thoughtful products that are crafted with features that solve the real travel problems you may encounter and so make your journeys so much more seamless. 
They kindly sent me a case for my own travels, which I was very pleased about and I'll tell you about shortly. As this week's show sponsors, Away are also kindly offering listeners of the show a $20 discount on one of their cases during checkout, with free shipping available to the contagious United States, Europe and Australia, simply by visiting www.awaytravel.com forward slash true crime and by using the promo true crime during checkout pretty good day it's as easy as that so let me tell you some more about away although i opted for just a plain black version myself when they contacted me to see which one i wanted to cater for different travel styles away cases come in an assortment of colors and with a range of unique offerings for personalization including the offer to have it hand painted cases come in two different sizes and are created with both strong, flexible polycarbonate and anodized aluminium that help each case last the lifetime it's designed for, but while still keeping it looking lightweight and durable. Security of each is covered with built-in TSA-approved combination locks, and what was my favourite feature about it when I used it recently, there's also an optional ejectable battery on the case with multi-ports, so you can keep yourself charged up whilst you're on your travels. I love this, I thought it's proper smart, and not only does it look good, it feels very sleek as it moves, thanks to each case having 360 degree revolving wheels. You'll be able to dodge the other cases whilst rushing through an airport, no worries. Inside it's just as impressive as well. Already having space enough to fit in the basic stuff that you take on a trip, a built-in compression pad helps you make that much more room so you can just put in that extra bit for peace of mind. Away also offer the thoughtful and handy touch of including a mains multi-adapter with assorted attachments so that you can stay charged up in more than 150 countries worldwide that's included with it. And proper catering for everything, a removable laundry bag within means you can separate your dirty clothes from your clean ones and it comes in a tough but stylish looking canvas dust bag that stores your case in when you're not out on the move with it. Sounds great so far, doesn't it? You have no worries about carrying them onto any flight that you get on either, because away carry-ons are designed specifically to comply with worldwide airline regulations and requirements. Each also comes with a limited lifetime warranty, so should the case or any part of it break, then no worries. Away will replace or repair the product, no problem. Also, you get a 100-day trial with an away product. So if you get one, you test it out and you think, it's not actually for me, this isn't then you can return any non-personalised away carry-on for a full refund. If you think to yourself, sounds great, I fancy a look at that, then you can indeed have a look for yourselves at the away stores in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Boston, Austin, New York, there's even one over in London. So to shop away and take advantage of this fantastic show sponsor offer, a fabulously designed and crafted product, an offer of free shipping, an easy and fair return policy topped off with a very kind $20 discount at checkout, and it's easy as pie. Just visit www.awaytravel.com forward slash true crime and use the promo true crime at checkout. You won't be disappointed. It's for sure the best case that I've ever had. Getting away means you're getting more out of every trip to come. We'll now continue with the episode, Suzanne's Story. 
The man who'd been arrested was Timothy Jack Robson, a 28-year-old carpenter and married fellow member of the Newport Deaf community who knew both Suzanne and Tony well, as they were friends of Robson and his wife Tracy, and someone who'd been found inside Suzanne's flat by Tony several times previously, looking a bit sheepish, shall we say, when Tony had arrived. He'd also once taken ages answering the flashing doorbell of his house when his mother-in-law had called around to visit unexpectedly. Suzanne Greenhill was found to be in the house when she went in, sitting on the settee in the front room, but wearing a t-shirt inside out, as though she'd just had to put it on in a hurry. Robson had come to police attention initially as one of the people Suzanne was rumoured to have had occasional liaisons with over time, but the events that led to his arrest on suspicion of her murder had started with a conference of the murder squad in the weeks after the Crime Watch appeal, which by that time had been reduced from the original 40 officers to just 10. Sadly, as we've said many times before on the show, crime doesn't wait in line, does it? And they'd got together to review the progress of the investigation. Part of this review looked at the way that police had gone about conducting interviews within the deaf community and how they had processed and interpreted the answers given in response to the questions that had been asked. It was following advice received from professionals working in capacity with the deaf community, including the then headmaster of Suzanne's former residential school, that police may have possibly been making incorrect deductions from the verbal translations by sign language interpreters of the interviews that they'd already conducted with members of the deaf community in the Newport area. Now I can imagine that conducting an interview through British Sign Language must be difficult because you have a response to a question that you ask and that's pretty much it. You don't have a tone of how something is said or a hesitancy in answering when asked something that a standard interview would pick up on things like that. It must have been a very very challenging inquiry Suzanne's and you've got to have some sympathy for the investigating team there. Still convinced that Suzanne's killer was someone known to her, hence part of the deaf community, police decided to draw up a list of people that they wished to re-interview, and at the very top of this list was Timothy Robson and his wife Tracy. The answers Robson had given when spoken to by police earlier in the inquiry had never been satisfactory, and almost from the beginning of the investigation, because of reports of his alleged liaisons with Suzanne, he'd been a possible suspect in her murder. And it wasn't just police who suspected this. Rumours were rife about him and Suzanne carrying on, and many of Robson's work colleagues at local timber merchants Montague Mayer, and people who frequented the same clubs as he did, were also voicing very strong suspicions that he had involvement with Suzanne's murder. He'd been seen with scratch marks on his face in the days immediately after the killing, and he'd also been seen to have a bandage around his right hand at the same time. One of his friends had even grabbed the bull by the balls and said outright to Robson, You killed her because she wouldn't let you fuck her. To which Robson had replied, quite angrily, You're crazy, don't be fucking stupid. However, suspicion and rumour is an evidence, and police had never been able to get anything incriminating on Robson enough to make an arrest, so he had to remain nothing more than a very strong suspect in Suzanne's murder until any evidence to conclusively point to his guilt came to light. His wife had supported his story that on the night of the murder he'd been out playing snooker in a nearby club and had gone straight from their home, nothing untoward. Now it's a flimsy story really, 
but one that was corroborated by his wife, so had to be parked there. But their chance to test the authenticity of this story came in January 1989, thanks to Tracy Robson. Because by that time, as a decree absolute had come through, what a day it is when that does, Timothy was her ex-husband. In July of the previous year, just days after Suzanne's murder, Tracy had left Robson and had filed for divorce from him on the 20th of July on the grounds of cruelty and unreasonable behaviour. Robson had not contested this, and the coincidental timing of the murder and the sudden divorce was not lost on police, and so by the end of January 1989, police had decided to re-interview Tracy Robson. Was there some connection between the two events? Although Tracy was herself only partially deaf, it was decided to use a sign language interpreter, social worker Margaret Roberts, to assist in her re-interview, during which Tracy was again asked for her version of the events of June the 28th, 1988, the evening that police were convinced Suzanne had been murdered, as all subsequent sightings of Suzanne on the Wednesday and Thursday, the 29th and the 30th of June, were now being discounted as mistaken identity or confused times and dates. In a re-interview, Tracy Robson now stated that on the evening of 28th of June of the previous year, her ex-husband had left their former home in Newport's Gayer Park Road at around 7pm that evening, decked out in his favoured red acrylic V-neck sweater with the Welsh feathers symbol embroidered on it, to head to the Gayer Club, a social club very near to his house, to play snooker. Now this was a regular occurrence as Robson was the snooker team captain there, and he'd left the house carrying his snooker cue in its case, saying that he was going to meet up with Dave, who Tracy took to be a friend of his that she knew from the club. Everyone has a friend called Dave, don't they? Everyone, my mate Dave, yeah. And they usually turn out to be a legend of some sort, I found. Pretty much every one of my friends called Dave is. Tracy explained that she thought Robson would head into Newport Town Centre for a few pints after playing snooker that evening as was usual, and so didn't expect him home until quite late. Sure enough, Robson didn't get home until 11.30pm the same evening. Putting down his snooker case and taking off his jacket when he got in, however, Tracy had noticed that he appeared agitated or angry, he was perspiring and he was physically shaking. His right hand and knuckles were red and swollen, and he had three scratches on his face that Tracy was convinced had been caused by fingernails. She also noticed that Robson had blood all over his clothing, as well as blood staining to the toe part of his trainers. Explaining this, Robson claimed that he'd gotten into a fight with a man in a Newport Town Centre pub over an argument concerning a girl that Robson claimed had once scammed him out of money, cutting the conversation dead and telling Tracy not to tell anybody about this fight. He'd then stripped down to his vest and underpants and taken his outer clothing into the kitchen, where shortly afterwards Tracy had heard the washing machine being put on before her husband walked upstairs. She'd then headed into the kitchen to make tea for them both, and had noticed that the washing machine had been placed onto the setting for a quick wash, getting the clothing out a short time later, the trousers, shirt, red jumper and socks, when the quick cycle had finished shortly afterwards. Before both retired to bed, she'd noticed her husband place his trainers by the side of the gas fire in the house to dry out, and the next morning, he had vigorously scrubbed them in the kitchen sink with a nail brush to remove blood staining from them, which Tracy noticed 
was also inside the trainers. Once this was done, Robson had replaced them by the gas fire again to dry out. That weekend, when the body of Suzanne Greenall had been discovered and it was all that the community could discuss, Tracy had gone to her mother and had shared the story of the Tuesday night's occurrences with her. However, she'd never come forward with this. Maybe it was something she at the time didn't want to believe. Maybe she was scared even. But it had gnawed away at her, and with the rumours that she must have heard concerning Robson and Suzanne also, she did the only thing that she felt she could, and left him, filing for divorce. Based on Tracy's new statement, at 7.45am on the morning of Wednesday the 1st of February 1989, a team of police officers led by Detective Sergeant Neil Webber and accompanied by an interpreter, Hugh Jobson, arrested Timothy Robson in the street outside his home, 126 Gayer Park Drive, as he was preparing to leave for work that morning. He was taken immediately to Newport Central Police Station for questioning, and by 8pm that evening, his parents had been informed that he'd been arrested in connection with the murder of Suzanne Greenhill. A search warrant for both Robson's home address and that of his parents, who lived just a few doors up from Robson at 147 Gayer Park Drive, was applied for and was granted, and subsequently was searched by a team of forensic and search specialists, which resulted in a number of items being removed from the premises for forensic examination. Amongst these items was the red V-neck embroidered sweater that was found in a wardrobe in his bedroom, which witnesses were to later state that Robson had been in the regular habit of wearing to the Gayer Club for snooker matches, but that he'd not been seen to wear for a number of months, in fact since the end of June the previous year. A locked cash box was found in the same wardrobe, which included a copy of the South Wales Argus newspaper, dated 13th of July 1988, that featured an article concerning Suzanne's murder, there was a large number of pornographic photographs that suggested Robson had a particular fetish for women's breasts. There were several cuttings from pornographic magazines and some undeveloped camera films that when developed showed that Robson had himself taken a series of photographs of certain points in pornographic videos which he'd been watching at home and which he'd paused the video at to take the photo. Whatever flicks your switch, I guess. There was also a set of keys found in this cash box that when tested some time later were found to be part of the set that had gone missing from Suzanne Greenhill's flat about two years previously. There was a key for the airing cupboard there as well as a closet inside her flat but the keys that fitted the communal door and the door to number 9 Tewkesbury Walk itself were missing from this bunch. These keys became extremely significant when a witness came forward to state that sometime during the summer of 1987, Robson had showed her a set of keys which he said were for the flat of Suzanne Greenhill, which he claimed she'd given to him so that he could periodically check on her well-being. A check with Tony Wesson revealed that Suzanne had claimed she'd indeed lost a spare set of keys, resulting in him getting another set cut, but she'd made no mention of giving them to Robson. Police also recovered from Robson's house nine pairs of ladies' knickers that belonged to women other than Tracy Robson, who stated that during their marriage, it was not an uncommon occurrence for her to find knickers belonging to other women hidden all over their house. It's kind of no wonder they got divorced, really, was it? 
Other finds of significance for the investigating officers who were searching Robson's house included a ghoul-type face mask, whatever a ghoul looks like, and a record sleeve which showed a similar ghoul-type creature armed with a blood-dripping knife standing over the naked body of a woman who'd been stabbed to death. The woman on the record sleeve had a strip of black tape placed across her eyes. Now Suzanne had tape placed across her eyes also, and of course she'd also been left partially unclothed and stabbed viciously to death. So police had to consider this now. Was this Robson acting out some sort of macabre fantasy, if of course he'd killed Suzanne? Finally, police found a book on infertility which it transpired had been purchased a couple of years previously when Robson and Tracy were trying for a baby. Having problems conceiving, the couple had seen a consultant obstetrician at Newport's Royal Gwent Hospital, where a semen sample that was submitted by Robson showed that his sperm count was so low he was almost certainly infertile. This tied in with the semen found in the vaginal swab that was taken from Suzanne's body, which had revealed the presence of human semen that the sperm count of had proved to be so low that DNA profiling was at the time not possible, though it had revealed the blood group to be O. Circumstantial, yeah? It would have convinced the swingers off me, I tell you. During his lengthy questioning, Robson continually denied having been at Suzanne's flat on the night of the 28th of June 1988. He denied ever having had sex with Suzanne, and he strongly denied having murdered her. He denied having had blood on his clothing and trainers when he arrived home on the evening in question, accusing Tracy of barefaced lying to get him into trouble, bitter over their divorce. Throughout interrogation, he claimed that he had arrived home breathless and perspiring that evening because, as he did sometimes, he'd simply run home from the pub. Now, I've never once run home from the pub myself. I've walked home spangled many a time, but I've never thought, right, I'm beating my own record home tonight, legging it after having a couple of pints. Who does that? Initially, Robson claimed to police that the scratches to his face and he couldn't deny them because they'd been seen by too many other people, had been received when he'd been glassed during an argument in a Newport public house, and he persisted with this story during the first two days of his interrogation, during which time he had blood samples taken from him, was fingerprinted, and had prints of his bare and stockinged feet taken as well. Robson's stockinged footprint sample was found to match in size and pattern exactly the bloodstained stocking footprint that had been found at the scene of the crime on Suzanne's bathroom floor, and the blood samples taken confirmed that Robson was an O-type secretor, consistent with the blood group obtained from the semen samples taken from the forensic examination of Suzanne's body. As questioning resumed on the morning of Friday the 3rd of February, at 10.15am Robson requested that he be allowed conference with his appointed solicitor Dudley Harmston, and interviews were suspended until 4.15pm the same day whilst this underwent. When they resumed following this consultation, Robson now stated that his earlier story had been a fabrication, the reason being that he'd gotten into a fight and believed that he would get in trouble if he admitted it. His new alibi was that he'd left home on the Tuesday evening in question at 7pm, as been confirmed by his ex-wife, and had gone to a public house in the town centre called the Sovereign Bar. Here, he'd made advances towards a girl there at about 9 to 9.30pm, 9 
and had been angrily pushed away by a man who had approached the pair. This man had been rapidly joined by two other men, who had then all three advanced on Robson in a threatening manner, and becoming frightened, he'd ran out of the pub chased by the three. They'd pursued him through the streets of the town, past the bus station and the Royal Gwent Hospital, until they caught up with him at a spot on Cardiff Road, adjacent to Bellevue Park, where he was punched by one of the men, causing him to fall against the perimeter of the wall. This had caused the abrasions to his face when it scraped against the rough surface of the brick. He'd subsequently punched one of his attackers, which had caused the swelling and reddening injury to his hand, before escaping his pursuers by climbing up onto the roof of a nearby bus shelter. He confirmed that he left home with his snooker case and had arrived back home with it, having kept hold of it throughout the altercation in the pub, the lengthy chase through Newport, which reminded me of the classic Baseball Furies chase in The Warriors. What film The Warriors is, eh? Then kept hold of it in the fight by Bellevue Park and even Robson scaling the bus shelter. He must have really, really, really loved that snooker cue then, eh? Conference with the Crown Prosecution Service decided that with all of this combined, there was evidence enough to charge Robson, and on Monday the 6th of February 1989, Robson appeared in Newport Magistrates Court charged with the murder of Suzanne Greenhill. At the first hearing, Robson's solicitor Dudley Harmston asked that standard reporting restrictions in the case be lifted, so that an appeal could be made through the local media for witnesses to come forward and to help confirm the new alibi that Robson had offered. This was granted, but no one was to ever come forward to support his unlikely sounding story or provide evidence of the alleged chase and subsequent fight. Bar staff who were working at the Sovereign Bar on the Tuesday night in question were spoken to, but denied that such an altercation had taken place. Indeed, they stated that there had been no disturbances at all that night, nor at any time that week. It was a period that they remembered especially well, because not only had been the time of the Newport Carnival, a time when the pubs were especially busy with clientele, as carnival time always does bring out wherever they are, I'm sure you'll agree, But it was also, of course, the time where Suzanne's body was discovered, and you tend to remember a brutal, horrific, and still at that time, unsolved murder that happens right on your doorstep, don't you? So Robson's story was looking as likely as the A-team rocking up to a problem that someone's called them for and saying, sorry, can't help you there, mate. Granted, but if police thought that was it, case done and dusted, nah. It was to be three years before the case was put to rest after four trials and two appeals. The trial of Timothy Robson began on Tuesday the 3rd of October 1989 at Cardiff Crown Court, presided over by Mr Justice Roche, where Robson entered through an interpreter, Mrs Jill Hughes, a plea of not guilty to the murder of Suzanne Greenhill. A team of sign language interpreters had been booked for the duration of the proceedings to provide interpretation at every stage, from the initial plea being put through, right through the trial, to the summing up and any verdict being delivered. A necessary step, because many of the 80 or so witnesses to be called during the trial were either deaf themselves or of partial hearing. In the opening address for the prosecution, Mr Philip Price QC described how Suzanne's neighbours had found Tony Wesson cradling his head in his hands and howling after finding his fiancée's body lying in a pool of blood in her flat. 
Blood marks on the bedroom door had led Tony into a scene of absolute horror where the rape and murder had taken place. It was, Mr Price said, a frenzied knife attack that had involved six separate blows to the neck and throat, severing Suzanne's carotid artery and spraying a considerable amount of blood all over the room. There had additionally been a stab wound to Suzanne's back that had been delivered with considerable force. He also described how Suzanne was found partially naked and her underwear stuffed into her mouth, but that she'd also been blindfolded with adhesive tape, saying, The feature of horror is that, of course, this blindfold cut off the principal sense left to her. Can you imagine just how frightening her last moments must have been for Suzanne? I can only imagine the panic and fear that she must have felt anyway of being attacked like that. But imagine being deprived of your one remaining sense as well. Just callous beyond belief, that is. Horrific. The court heard that there was evidence from the post-mortem that suggested Suzanne had been raped and that she'd been dead for a considerable amount of time before she was found, which the prosecution alleged was the night of the 28th of June 1988. By a strange coincidence, 31 years to the very day where I wrote the episode. Mr Price referred to forensic evidence taken from the body of Suzanne Greenhill, the vaginal swabs, that the prosecution claimed would show that human semen found when these tests were performed was that of a matching blood group to Robson's, and that red fibres which had been recovered on body tapings taken from Suzanne's body matched a red acrylic sweater known to have been one owned by Robson which he'd allegedly been wearing on the night in question, and which he'd not been seen wearing since then until it was recovered from a wardrobe in his house during the police search. Suddenly, on the fifth day of the trial, Mr Justice Roach halted the proceedings and dismissed the jury with no official reason given at the time, although it was later established that this was due to one of the jurors making unauthorised comments to an outside source concerning photographs of the crime scene and Suzanne's body. It was felt that it would have been unsafe to continue with the trial following this, so a new jury was sworn in on the following day and the trial effectively began again. The evidence and witness testimony continued, but on the 2nd of November, Robson's entire defence team quit the case unexpectedly, again with no official reason given and the jury was discharged once again. Behind the scenes, however, it was known that new and improved DNA profiling techniques were now almost available, tests that would be able to provide an individual DNA profile regardless of a low sperm count, and the prosecution would say that the new tests would be able to prove conclusively that the semen found in the vaginal swabs came from Robson, who continued to deny any involvement in the murder. The defence were looking at a bit of a losing battle that they were unprepared for with a development like this, and Mr Justice Roche granted an application for a new trial, which began on the 29th of January 1990. The highlight of trial number three, which was to last three weeks, was the evidence that was given for the prosecution by Tracy Robson, the ex-wife of the accused, who described the events of the 28th of June 1988 as described earlier in the episode, how Robson had returned home dishevelled and bloodstained, claiming that he'd been in a fight in a pub. He'd taken off his clothes straight away and placed them into the washing machine, something that he'd never done previously, and how he'd scrubbed his trainers free of blood with a nail brush vigorously the following morning. Central to the defence case in all proceedings 
was the series of alleged sightings of Suzanne after the Tuesday that the prosecution claimed she'd been murdered on. A number of witnesses who'd made these sightings had given evidence at Robson's trial, but these were ultimately dismissed as being mistaken when taken into account with the result of the two post-mortems, as well as the fact that Suzanne had dyed her hair a different colour than usual the day she was last definitively seen alive, and they'd made no mention of this. Taking this into account with Robson's ever-changing and unsupported alibi, the forensic evidence, although at that time circumstantial, that tied him to the scene, and the evidence discovered during the search of Robson's house, and it didn't take the jury long upon retiring to find Timothy Robson guilty of murder. Still denying his guilt, on February the 20th, 1990, my 12th birthday that was, few coincidences with the episode this week, he was then sentenced to life imprisonment. Sensationally though, on the 13th of March 1992, Robson's conviction was overturned at the Court of Appeal in London after it was ruled to be unsafe and unsatisfactory because of material irregularities late in the third trial which were unfair to the defence case, though what these were exactly I was unable to determine. Lord Justice Taylor claimed that the judge at this trial should have discharged the jury at this point in the third trial and that his legal directions towards them were open to criticism resulting in the law lords ordering that a retrial take place. Robson remained in custody, although he'd had his conviction quashed and his sentence set aside. Therefore, in effect, the fourth trial of Timothy Jack Robson took place on the 9th of July 1992, and by this trial, of course, DNA profiling was advanced enough to prove conclusively that the semen found in the vaginal swabs taken from Suzanne belonged unquestionably to Timothy Robson. Robson now admitted that he'd lied at his earlier trial and had actually had sex with Suzanne that evening, but claimed that it was with her consent completely and when he'd left her following this to get home to his wife, she was alive and well. He lied previously because he believed he would have been the prime suspect in her murder if he'd admitted this, whereas the prosecution claimed he'd only admitted this when it was unquestionably proven and he was cornered by science, and they contended that he'd used the keys that he'd taken some years previously and had lain in wait for Suzanne to return home that evening before subjecting her to a sexual attack that resulted in her murder. It was suggested that Robson had acted out a fantasy that he'd developed concerning the record sleeve found during the search of his house, leaving Suzanne half-naked eyes taped and stabbed to death in a replica of the chilling image. I mean, it is quite telling that, isn't it? Why else would it be locked away in the cash box? The jury of six men and six women needed only 45 minutes in retirement before they filed back into the courtroom and delivered a unanimous verdict of guilty. Robson was then sentenced to life imprisonment for the second time still protesting his innocence and still denying his involvement in Suzanne's murder. However, the circumstantial and forensic evidence presented had been overwhelming, and Robson's lies and prevarications regarding his alibi or his movements and actions on the night in question told very strongly against him. As the verdict was read out in court, Robson's mother Joan screamed out, Never, never, this is a great injustice! before she and his father Cyril broke down in tears. 
Robson over the years continued to give the same story that was disbelieved and was never to admit to the murder. He appealed against his second conviction in 1994, but the conviction was upheld. Following his father's death a short time later, his mother Joan campaigned for many years for the case to be reopened, still utterly convinced that her son had been wrongfully convicted, and in July 1997, a documentary series on the UK television channel Channel 4, Trial and Error Live, featured Suzanne's case and raised the possibility that Robson had indeed been wrongfully convicted of the murder. Trial and Error Live was by all accounts a bit of an investigative series that looked at possible miscarriages of justice. I did search high and low for the availability of this programme whilst I was researching the episode, but I was unable to find it. Following this programme being aired, however, it's reported that Joan Robson was to receive an anonymous telephone call from a man who claimed that Robson was indeed innocent and that he knew the name of the real killer of Suzanne Greenhill. However, no further details were available about this, and although Gwent Constabulary were informed of this, they refused to reopen the inquiry, stating that they were satisfied that Robson had been rightly convicted. It was said, though, that for many years afterwards, the deaf community in Newport remained divided over the crime. Many believed the overwhelming evidence that had been amassed, and that Robson was indeed guilty of a savage rape and horrific murder whilst equally there were others who just couldn't bring themselves to believe that he could do such a thing and that police had got it wrong. Because this is such an obscure crime to have researched, I was unable to ascertain if Robson has ever since been released from prison on licence. It's possible, due to the amount of time that has passed since his conviction, as 15 years would have been an average time for a prisoner to serve before being eligible for parole, However, because Robson continually denied his involvement in the murder up to and following his conviction, this will have impacted any minimum term and he may indeed still be serving his sentence to this day. He may even be dead by now, I couldn't find this out. So what do you guys think? Was Robson guilty of Suzanne's horrific murder or is he a convenient scapegoat that was guilty of being a liar and a terrible husband but not necessarily a killer? and police didn't look any further for a killer who may indeed still be out there. As we said, the case divided the deaf community in Newport, and sufficient noise must have been made about Robson's second conviction for a network television series to research and feature the case in one of its episodes. It isn't a series I remember from back in the mid-90s, Trial and Error Live, but back then I was a bit more of a Bottler 2020 and 10 Lambert Butler in the Park enthusiast than a true crime one. I did find a couple of episodes of the series on YouTube, but not the one concerning Suzanne's case, unfortunately. And I found the best part of Nout, overall, about Suzanne's murder during lengthy research. It was a case that I vaguely remembered being on Crime Watch many years back, of course, but I couldn't remember exact names or dates. I just remembered the fact that a case featured concerned a murder victim who was deaf. Then that wonderful YouTuber, Redcard74, came along, uploaded the Crime Watch feature in the reconstruction of the events leading up to Suzanne's murder, and her case became one for the Fridge chalkboard. Now the evidence against Robson that I've described here, I personally thought pretty conclusive, although you can look at it also and think, yes, circumstantial really. No fingerprints of Robson's on a murder weapon were described, 
and no witnesses saw him coming or going from Suzanne's flat that evening. Yet he'd certainly had sex with her that evening, so he'd obviously been there. His small bloody footprint was found on her bathroom floor, and he gave a far-fetched story to explain away scratches, a hand injury, and a heavy blood stain into his clothes, a story that could not be substantiated or supported by any witnesses. He lied repeatedly throughout questioning, and only changed his story when DNA profiling proved beyond question that he'd had sex with Suzanne, and then only admitting that he was there, but denying her murder. He also had a hidden set of keys to her flat in a locked box, a newspaper clipping about Suzanne's murder in the same box, and a record sleeve that depicted a murdered woman that Suzanne could arguably have been a carbon copy of when she was found. He was found guilty based on the evidence available, and although his initial conviction was ruled unsafe, it was not because of challenging any witness testimony or quality of any physical evidence, it was because of a point of legal direction. A separate jury found him guilty at his retrial based on the same evidence, plus Robson now admitting that he was present at the crime scene on the night Suzanne was murdered. Already given the impression that he was a storyteller, he was highlighted as a liar here, but only because the magic of DNA profiling proved he was there and had forced him to confess to this. That's more than reasonable doubt to me, that how about you? And it certainly was to the second jury, because it took them less than an hour to decide this. Why Suzanne was killed exactly, and the exact sequence of events that took place in Suzanne's flat on the night of her murder, we will never likely know, because Robson has continually denied committing the crime. It's possible that she was involved in an affair with him, and previous evidence would suggest that there was some sort of casual sexual relationship going on between the two. Did she threaten to tell Tracy, perhaps? Or did Robson, and again, the evidence found in the locked box suggested that he already had a sexual fetish for breasts in particular and a liking for pornography? Did he develop some sort of macabre fantasy based on these and the record sleeve that was also found along with them, and he developed an obsessive fantasy of reenacting it? Perhaps choosing a victim he knew that he could get alone at any point because he had a set of keys to lie in wait for her in her own home. A victim he knew couldn't scream and to add to the horror and cruelty of this then deprived Suzanne of her one remaining full sense because it was part of the fantasy. That surely is evil in itself, isn't it, doing that? And Robson, if he is still serving his sentence, then he is deservedly where he should be and I hope that each day that passes feels like a year for him. I have empathy for all involved in the case, bar for Suzanne's killer. I thought this such a sad case. Anything involving children, the elderly, or vulnerable people always does strike me that certain little bit extra, and I thought it was heartbreaking for a young woman to be born, already facing the challenges that Suzanne did, to have a life which by all accounts she felt that her condition defined and isolated her throughout many periods of it, to finally find her independence and to look forward to a bright future with her fiancé, only to be attacked, raped and murdered in her own home to satisfy the cravings and warped fantasy of a brutal sex killer before she got chance to have any of this because she was vulnerable. That defines tragic to me, how about you?
hope that you found this episode an interesting and informative one and I'm intrigued to hear what you guys think concerning Suzanne's story. By now you know where you can do just that because the episode thread will be up and running as you hear the episode in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook group or you can reach out through any of the show's other social media. I'm always about and I'll always get back to you and if you don't already do so the links to follow me are with the episode's show notes alongside the show's Patreon link. Bonus episode number 19 is coming up shortly for anyone interested in becoming a supporter, alongside some other offers, which are of course up to you guys completely. I'll be back next week with another tale, but before I end here, in the Letters from a Fan episode a couple of weeks ago, I went about promoting a great new show called True Crime Fix. It's just wrapped a brilliant first series and is well worth a listen to, but then I uploaded the wrong episode file by mistake and so actually omitted the show promo itself from the episode, because I'm a dick sometimes. So thanks to those who got in touch to point this out to me, I've slapped myself with a wet fish, explained and apologised to the host, and this week, for definite this time, here is Stevie B offering you a taste of his true crime fix. How many of you know the name Linda Goff, or Sarah Marslin? I bet you will have heard of their murderers though, Fred West and Harold Shipman. Hi everybody, this is Steve, the host of True Crime Fix, the podcast which gives the story whilst giving the victim the loudest voice of them all. So far we've covered cases such as Colette Aram, Kitty Genovese, Jackie Paul, JC Sawyer and Molly McLaren. I'll be releasing new episodes every other Friday via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify and all other available stations. So please come over and subscribe and give my podcast a listen. I really hope that you find these episodes informative. If you would like further information, please follow me on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod or find me on Facebook, True Crime Fix Podcast. And remember, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone. And we got there in the end, eh? Go check out True Crime Fix. It's great, it really is. And the show can be found all over social media with the same moniker. Plus a shiny group on Facebook for people to discuss the episodes. Time for me to wrap up for another week now. I believe I shall go and get that Patreon episode squared away. I thank you all for joining me today, folks. I've been, am and still will be Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast. Wishing you guys all good and safe times and I shall speak to you soon. Take care folks and goodbye for now.